Hello, welcome to the Monroe Live podcast. I'm Julian Ates. I'm joined by Antonio Denino and our special guest, Jordan, from The Limiting Factor. Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll start off, uh, just you know, talk a little bit about you, your channel, your process, how you select your videos, uh, how you go about doing your research, things like that. Uh, we're personally very curious to know. It's uh, chaotic is <laughs> probably the best way to put it. I don't even know where to start because... <clears throat> As the channel has progressed, uh, the way that I choose videos and the way that I develop them um, has changed as well. Um, I'm constantly working to streamline the process. I don't know if there's much there that I can geek out now, but I, I probably about, in terms of the process of making the video, I'm probably about twice as efficient as I was when I first started the channel. However, I um, it still takes me just as long to produce the videos because I, I, I find that I use that extra time to improve the quality of the videos. Sure. But from the very beginning, it's been a matter of trying to build a base of knowledge. Uh, sometimes I do videos that they're not really clickbaity. There's not a lot of people that watch them. There's not a lot of people interested in them. I might get 20,000 views on something, but I need to learn that information in order to make videos in the future. So there's uh, a topic that I want to cover and it's like, well, what's the first thing that I need to uh, understand about that topic to, you know, work towards the goal of uh, providing a broader understanding. Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it to someone else. Yeah. And one of the best ways to find out you're an idiot is to show something to 20,000 people <laughs> and, and have them tell you you're an idiot. No, we, so. we, we know. Yeah, nothing, no, no crime greater on the internet uh, than being wrong on the internet. You can not value your taxes. You can um, commit an offense on the, against the corporate system. Yeah. Being wrong on the internet, there's no, no forgiveness. Yeah. And it's... Um, I really appreciate the people who give good, well-considered feedback. That is just pure gold. Um, so, yeah, there's. I guess there's a saying that uh, if you want to learn from somebody who's never made a mistake, you're never going to learn anything. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate the people who see it in that light and cut me some slack and try to educate me. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are people that assume that uh, you're kind of a huckster or something like that, trying to just like get as many clicks as possible. But it's... Um, because there are a lot of people out there just doing clickbait content. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so. And your material is pretty technical. So you, you have an engineering or chemistry or science background? No, not at all. I just, um, I'm uh, curious. So you're not a didact? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I, uh, the, the way the channel started is, one of the reasons I did my, my first videos is because I was frustrated with the quality of information out there on batteries. I'm like, I don't know anything about batteries. I know very little, but I know that is wrong. So I just uh, saw a lot of YouTube channels reporting on batteries, and I was like, that can't be right. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try to progress the conversation a little bit. I did that. I feel like I progressed the conversation a bit. People gave me feedback and said, all right, you're, this is where you're wrong here, here, and here. I took that into consideration, did better the next video, and it's just kind of this constant feedback loop. Sure. And, that, and then what happened, and this was the unexpected and exciting part of the channel for me at the beginning, was that 
as the quality of the information improved, I caught the attention of people who were experts in the field. And then they started giving me feedback. So you kind of work your way up the totem pole from people who are, you know, they tinker around their garage or something like that. And then within a few months, you're talking to some of the, the, you know, the biggest experts in the world on batteries. So right. I was six months into the channel and then I was interviewing Shirley Mung from UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, she's been mentored by like Stan Whittingham and John Goodenough, some of the, the fathers of current lithium ion batteries. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, one of those isolated industries where it's not very often you hear feedback from a community or get a acknowledgement. So seeing someone else cover their materials, like, Oh, this is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's I, I, there's an appreciation there. Uh, so I, I feel like I was embraced by not just the Tesla community, but also uh, the research community as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question about my my process, how how I select videos. Uh, yeah, it's just it's organic, and it's all like I have a board of videos that I'm working on, and I I constantly have to scramble and mix that up because there's the things that I want to cover, the things I want to learn about. And then there's also Tesla throwing sticks in my wheel every time they do something new or different. It's like, oh, like uh, 80% of the time when I'm making a video, I'll be a third of the way through it, two-thirds of the way through it, or I may have just released it just for my Patreons. And then Tesla changes something, so I have to go redo that part of my video. So probably 20% of the work I put into the channel is redoing crap because Tesla uh, changed something on me or a new piece of information came out. So We we deal with that quite a bit too because even just, you know, within uh, a single model year, we've discussed this with various clients who have been in the building. Uh, At one point we had a a customer here and they wanted to take a look at the – you know, a couple different EVs, including the Model Ys. So we had both the 2020 Model Y uh, with the 2170 form factor cells as well as the 4680 pack Model Y. And we had them out next to each other and they asked us, you know, well, are they still, are they only producing the 4680 pack or are they doing both? And then as we discussed it, you know, they kind of came to the realization like, you know, there's a same model year vehicle, you know, same model, and it is out there effectively with two entirely different architectures. You know, that is just completely wild. So, you know, us trying to play catch up in that way too, tearing something down, costing it out. And then, yeah, as we're in the middle of that, we see, like I know Tesla just had their uh, hairpin uh, EDM uh, you know, unit uh, uh, come out. And so that's uh, something that's a lot different than what we've seen. And it's just, it's hard to keep up with them for sure. Yeah. And they'll, they'll have multiple iterations going, multiple um a, there's different iterations of the same vehicle, and then B, there's start and stop certain things. Like the 46A version, as, as I understand it, it was they're producing it for a few months and then they stopped, and now it's back online again. Right. And the 4680 is a nice little segue into some of the deeper stuff we can talk about because we've both uh, dissected the cells, we've done research on them, and we've uh, discussed our findings of each other. Mm-hmm. So. That's like one of the other things, like we've been conversing for a little while uh, regarding some of the technologies out there, some of the things we're seeing, and it's good to have a fact checker in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Vice versa. (laughs) Because, yeah, there's so much, um, a lot of what we have to do with Tesla, because so much of what they do is trade secret or in development. It's behind closed doors. So you want to do a sanity check. It's like, am I going off the deep end here? Am I assuming too much? What's the most logical approach to this? Tell me where I'm wrong. Right. And there's like a few different groups of people that I interact with uh, to basically do sense checks. So it it provides a lot of value for me. I don't think people realize how much communication is going on uh, 
behind the videos and behind what you see in the Tesla community. A lot of us are talking to each other, interacting, interacting, checking things. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So I, yeah, Antonio, you mentioned the 4680 pack. Did you want to uh, go into a little bit? And I guess maybe Jordan for you, uh, obviously you saw the cell portion of that. You had it torn down and analyzed. Was there anything that you were curious about, uh, you know, in terms of the the pack level or uh, anything that maybe was outside of just the cell analysis you had done? Or are there any lingering questions you may have for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a, <laughs> I speculate, I speculated quite a bit in my videos about Tesla's ability, because this is, for me, it's a very early pack. To me, this thing was just beyond prototype. It felt like it was, um, you know, it was fully operational, fully commercialized. However, it was definitely a version like 0.9 or 1.0 that mm-hmm. they put onto the market in terms of the battery cell. And my assumption is for the Cybertruck, that what they're going to do is they're going to strip a lot of the weight out of the battery cell itself, improve the engineering of the cell. Everybody's focused on silicon, things like that. I don't think Tesla is going to start adding silicon to the battery cell uh, until they have their manufacturing process really dialed in and have um, a somewhat final version of the cell. So strip weight out of the cell. But uh, so I have strong reason to believe that there's going to be uh, a, quite a bit of weight pulled out of that next version of the cell. I can't say more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, in terms of the pack, I'm curious what you guys think can be done or how much they can improve, improve the pack level energy density uh, of the pack. Sure. Battery cell aside. Well, we did see, um, like I just double-checked some of your videos before you came on, and then um, you rated the pack as a D. Um, and... Yeah, I would agree. It's because we did see a lot of the um, step step changes that are necessary to get to the future technologies within the pack. So the carbon nanotubes in the anode are definitely a step change towards getting silicon in the anode. Um, some of the other things was like, yes, they're more structural, but that might just be a placeholder so that it passes all the tests for vibration and um, dampening. But... Um, Yes, the pack is, with Tesla, everything is a work in progress. There's no such thing as a finished product. There's no model year-end, this is what we're going to publish, and this is what we're going to produce. It's it's always changing. So it's, it's kind of like, at least my perspective, it's uh, the first time you might, uh, at home, you might design and build like a step stool or something like that, and you use two by fours and put like twice as many screws in it as you need to. Right. And then the next version of it, you go, okay, I can knock, you know, I can shave that down to uh, two by threes or something like that, put a half as many screws in. Exactly. And so I think they can, pro- I don't know, I'm hoping just with the pack itself, not the cells that they can maybe improve it by 10% and then just pulling that figure out of the, out of the air. Right. Yeah, I and I know, yeah, so speaking, uh, Antonio's got more of a background in the chemistry of it, and I'm more, uh, you know, mechanical-oriented. Uh, uh, um, and so just taking a look at the the pack structure itself without even making a change to the cell chemistry itself, improving your volumetric or gravimetric density at the cell level. Uh, we were talking a little bit briefly before about that uh, high-density foam out to the outboard sides of the pack. Uh, there's about a hundred millimeters on either side. So in theory, you know, depending on, you know, they, that may have just been overcorrecting, uh, seeing how well it went and then they can dial that back later. So in theory, you could cut that distance in half and add an extra row of cells to either side. You'd have to do some reconfigurations in terms of your current collectors, your S and P configuration for the cells. However, in terms of packaging and additional 
Uh, I think that would, if we're going by the bandolier number, you could package up to maybe another 69 cells into the pack. Um, there are about 69 cells per bandolier. So there, there is an option just physical space-wise to just put more in there. There's room to make it longer, there's room to make it wider. Um, but yes, like other competitive models we are seeing, they have batteries all the way to the edge. Yes, even even other Tesla packs. Yeah, that, that's definitely the most generous, I believe, they've been with side sill, uh, you know, side impact considerations. Uh, and it could, yeah, be that they, you know, two you know, extra screws more than you need, but okay. maybe you just want to, yeah, exactly. And did you ever get a like a, a figure on the density of the foam itself? Because like I, I, what I did is I took a syringe at home and uh-huh. I took, dropped a little piece in. Yeah, that's and, yep. And it came to me as like point six something like that, but it was I. There was definitely a big margin for error. I want to say that uh, we did a very similar test internally, and we were getting somewhere around 0.5 grams per... 0.51, yes. Yeah, so so it was more or less, uh, yeah, pretty pretty on par with uh, with yours. But we, yeah, it was uh, kind of a painstaking <laughs> process because you can only get such a large chunk out of it, and it's, you know, it's just even getting the foam out to begin with was a challenge, but... Um, and one thing I'm wondering that just came to me was... That it's like an epoxy foam, or uh, is epoxy, is that what it is? Urethane. Urethane foam. Can they increase the ratio of air or uh, in that to lower the, the, the density of the foam? Absolutely. Okay. All right. They can do other things as well. Well, don't tease me. <laughs> there's, uh, there's fillers. They could do um, yeah. like a fiber. Um, it could be glass. It could be cellulose. Oh, yeah. And it would... Increase the rigidity mm-hmm. while taking out some mess. Well, what was interesting too is taking a look inside of the thing because uh, there were uh, protruded fiber boards inside the pack that uh, was maybe if there was a longitudinal. So, like in the original Model Y, you had the extruded longitudinal members inside the pack to separate the modules. In the 4680 pack, there were protruded fiber boards that effectively just floated in the epoxy and just sat between the cell arrays, just more of a electrical and thermal isolation measure. Um, but, uh, looking along the side of that, you could actually see during the teardown where, uh, the, uh, foam itself was so viscous, you could see it dripping down the sides and it didn't fully, uh, impregnate the entire void space inside the pack. So there were still some, I think we estimated like maybe they had 95% of the void space actually filled with the foam. Um, so yeah, that wasn't able to actually get to all of the spaces anyway, but I think, you know, possibly aerating it or having some fillers there, but maybe increasing the space that it's getting to and adding something changes its properties so maybe it flows less well and it doesn't fill those gaps as well if you add um fiber um adulterants to it what's poltruded oh uh it's um almost uh it's like a and i could be wrong here just from what i remember about researching it but it's uh effectively like a um fiber reinforced uh composite that's uh, almost like um extrusion it is uh, a brand name right uh with the pultruded fiber board or pultrusion is a brand name i believe i'd have to double check that i just know that's uh it, it could be i i assumed that it was the process that was used but um i we can double check that it's like extruding a polymer yeah okay yeah I just with you. fiber reinforcements and even uh blasting it away with the dry ice it's uh, a lot like the uh carbon wrapping on the rotor it was very fibrous we were picking it out of our fingers for oh. you know a couple of days after we handled it without gloves yes uh, somewhat uh, naively memories um 
Yeah. That sounds like it was a blast pulling that thing apart. Uh, it was quite literally with the, with the ice blaster, oh, yeah. but it was, uh, yeah, I know that. I think, how long were we taking that thing apart for? It had to have been over three months. Yes. It took about three and a half weeks just to get the lid off. Uh, and that was before we had the dry ice blaster. Uh, then once we had the lid off in its entirety, uh, yeah, about a month of dry ice blasting. We didn't have an air compressor that was large enough to run the machine longer than a couple seconds at a time. So we had to go rent a uh, basically a mobile construction site air compressor, hook that up to the dry ice blaster, start clearing away the potting, and then uh, peeling up through the current collectors. And then to actually extract the cells, um, I, wa- I meant to go grab one before we started. Uh, but we actually had to, uh, because they're on the uh, cooling bands, the serpentine bands, and they're glued there. So the only way we could actually extract them is uh, we had to uh, construct it. Basically, it was a one-inch copper uh, pipe with a uh, you know flange out to a two-inch, uh, which was more or less the OD of the 4680 cell. And we had to take a dead blow hammer, set this what looked like a cocktail shaker over the top of each cell, and smack down on it until we could crack it off of the cooling channel to actually get it out. And we got, I think, 521 Sells out that way. I think we had over six hundred. Six. Oh, you know, you're right. It was six hundred and yeah, yeah, six hundred and twenty-one. Because then the next module would have made it the full eight twenty-eight. Right. So, um, yeah. So it was a fairly arduous process uh, to say. I, I can imagine because the, I had one cell, and it's like hard tack candy coated to the mm-hmm. outside of the cell, and I had to, uh, you know, shave it off with a chisel without mm-hmm. piercing the cell can. Mm-hmm. Just to get a little sample of it. Yeah. I probably shouldn't have been doing that, but I was curious. I burn yeah. a little bit. We've done worse. Don't yeah, worry. it's no, and it, it was quite dick because you had to get it to seat just right. Otherwise, you could very easily dent the top of the can or, you know, it was, yeah, it was, um, yeah, we were pretty nervous. And then we were also, uh, you know, it was the middle of August, so it was nice and humid. And then we're, you know, spraying this you know, frozen CO2. So we had all this condensate forming. So we had to have people dabbing off the batteries as we were blasting. So we didn't get too much condensate going and, you know, it was a little bit of a mess, but. I mean, there was no established process for it. No one's done it before. We were figuring out as we went. Do you you think the next one you'll be able to tear it down more quickly with what you've learned? (laughs) Yes. I think now that we know what to expect, uh, very much so. Um, I, uh, in ter- it, yeah, and in terms of, uh, you know, changes that could be made, so say they reduce, like, that foam on the uh, the sides of the pack, there would be more overall potting there. Uh, but I overall, I don't think that would impact the process very much. I don't know any improvements they would make if it would make it more difficult to tear down than what we had done. Uh, how, part of it was honestly just uh, realizing, and I think somebody in a comment on one of our videos had actually suggested the dry ice blasting, so then part of it was in the middle of trying to get this done, you know, in a time crunch, um, you know, we had set a tentative, you know, end date for this, not knowing exactly what it was going to take to get it apart. So we had to find a place that would let us rent a blaster like that day. Uh, I had to figure out how much that was going to cost. And then it's, you know, they sell you the ice pellets by the, you know, 500 pound box. And it's like, okay, well, what's the, how much are we going to actually use to get this thing apart? How many 500 pound boxes of ice do we need? So we learned pretty quickly that we didn't order enough. So we basically had, you know, shipments almost every other day coming in with two or three of these boxes. Uh, You'd feed them into a hopper and then it almost looked like a, you know, Ghostbusters uh, gun. You know, we just, uh, and it was slow. Uh, It took quite a lot of material, but yeah, you know, I remember you guys getting some flack because people thought the cells were too expensive. But I was like, no, I don't think you realize that there's this whole business in, around uh, just 
having the expertise, the equipment, uh, taking the risk, et cetera, of pulling that pack apart, safety, all these different factors. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that, you know, that's how much it's cost to, you know, pull a cell out of one of these and, uh, uh, you know, pay for the teardown and stuff. So I thought it yeah. was fair. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, just, I mean, in terms of the man hours, uh, it's, yeah, it did end up being fairly, <laughs> it, it was, it was pretty fair as it worked yeah, out. And on top of that, you didn't sell all the cells you need mm-hmm. uh, to keep some around for other purposes. Right. Um, one thing I want to circle back on was that you mentioned carbon nanotubes. Yes. Because I, I know if I wouldn't touch on that, people are going to be like, what carbon nanotubes? Cause I, I, I didn't come across carbon nanotubes. Uh, in the battery cell. So uh, I just want to get some clarification there, make sure we're on the same That was page. the uh, fibers that we saw in the anode, right? Oh, the, the carbon fiber. Okay, so those fibers that we saw, like those spider silk-like filaments, yes. that's like a kind of like a Teflon. And what they do is they kind of mush it and uh, run it through a jet mill, and then it fiberalizes and it turns into those threads. Okay. So it's not uh, carbon nanotubes, but rather uh, just Teflon that's been bubblegumized. Teflon in the anode. I didn't think it would last there. Oh, well, now we're going to get into deep technical stuff. It doesn't. Oh. Uh, it, this, my understanding is it doesn't. Like when uh, Maxwell was running tests on those about 10 years ago, they were seeing first cycle losses of around 20% on those battery cells. So one of the things that like everybody thought that the anode was going to be the issue for Tesla, but th- th- that's what they started with. And it's the cathode that they're having issues with more to do with the production process. But electrochemically, when it comes down to the deep science, the anode is the more difficult one to do. So uh, I did a video like four months ago. I found some patents for Bosch. What Bosch did is they said, okay, we're going to have this fiberalizable binder that kind of uh, turns into bubble gum. Uh, and what's going to happen is after you cycle that battery cell, that's going to break down. But what we're going to do is we're going to put an auxiliary binder, a secondary binder in there uh, that's typically used on an anode. So you use the f- fiberalizable binder to form those nice sheets that get, um, you know, compressed on to the copper foil. Mm-hmm. And um, you put it in the battery cell, that first vib- binder dissolves and breaks down, and then you have the other binder that actually holds things together when the battery cell is cycling. Okay. But I was like, well, Bosch has a patent for that. Is there any other way to do this? This is a fascinating patent stuff, patent games. Um, I found a patent for Tesla that said, oh, we're also going to use a secondary binder. Uh, but the reason we're putting in there is so it flows better when it goes into the machine. <laughs> so it's like you get the benefit of having that secondary binder in there. But you're uh, when you're playing these patent games, you can mm-hmm. get away with things like that. Oh, I'm actually using it for something different. And they, they're probably getting some substantial benefit out of the blo- uh, flow, uh, getting that material to flow into the dry battery electrode machine. But it's like people think that if you have a patent for something that you're good and nobody can touch you, but you really have to look at the wording of the patent and how broad the patent is. So I I think they were able to get around it. And yeah, I assumed it was single wall nanotubes because I went to the battery show and one of the uh, presenters there had a, uh, an image that was eerily similar to the ones that we've take took whenever we were doing Mm -hmm. the uh, anode analysis. Um, And they were like, Oh Yeah. Wink, wink. Um, this might be some of the stuff Tesla's using, and it's our single wall nanotube material. Okay. Well, I found a lot of these early stage startups. They'll mention Tesla. Wink, wink. But um, right. And what they're trying to do is just kind of more. It's that halo effect. They want to be clo- more closely associated with Tesla. Does and maybe Tesla will do that. I've heard 
um, rumors to that effect that Tesla might be using um, other materials along with their silicon when they put it in there to actually hold things together. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I mean, it's a miracle that they even got the anode to work as soon as they did. Mm-hmm. But then to add silicon, which adds all these other stresses to the battery cell, are they going to be able to do that with like that uh, two binder structure or are they going to need something else in the anode as well to help uh, hold things together? So it might be, they might end up doing that in the future. Right. Uh, wh- what is that uh, name of the company? I forget what it was called. The one I saw was Oxala. Okay. I haven't heard of them. I right. believe it's like they used to have uh, oxygen, carbon, whatever the next few elements are in a periodic table as their name. Okay. Now, I, I, I may have heard of that before. There are so many startups. There's uh, hundreds of them. I, I was thinking it might be, there's one other company that was kind of like an offshoot of Maxwell, one of the original researchers of the dry battery electrode. She started her own company doing dry battery electrode. And so there, even though Tesla is the furthest along in commercialization, it's important for people to know that there are other companies out there working on it. Right. So. It's not a um, monolithic technology. Yeah. So the question is how far ahead Tesla is in commercialization. I'm, you know, I don't see anybody else picking up that technology and using it for at least a few years. You know, one of the po- um, popular phrases is mass production is hard. Yeah. And because they are able to do that, that's what puts them ahead of everybody else. And uh, one thing that uh, Gene Berdachevsky, he's like Sila Nano, he started his own battery company as well. He used to work at Tesla, but he's like first to scale wins. So even if you might have a technology that's slightly inferior, if you can get it to scale first and become profitable, well, you're the one that's going to survive. And you can take that money, roll it back into the product and improve it. Even if you start with an inferior, slightly inferior product, you can. Um, well, speaking of that, there was a recent. Uh, sodium ion vehicle in china mm-hmm. first to market not the best out there but it is first and that's something uh, i want to talk about with you because i want to i want to try to get you uh twist your arm to get uh your hands on some of those sodium ion batteries by maybe importing a vehicle something like that um like i don't know if because in the past you've done fundraisers to gather money for like the plaid model s the tesla semi things like that whereas this this isn't like a hundred thousand dollar vehicle mm-hmm. it'll be maybe a ten thousand dollar vehicle but the shipping is going to be expensive and it's going to be <laughs> <clears throat> i know how much trouble you guys went through shipping those 4680 battery cells around the world. <laughs> oh my. yeah that, it's like basically saying oh i want to ship bombs to every country in the world <laughs> so, that's um, essentially what it worked out to yes yeah, yeah. yeah so i know people other people who had ordered cells and that uh they're patiently waiting for their cells, but they understood that it was um, quite a process to get those shipped around the world. Uh, but yeah, so importing one of those vehicles might be difficult, but for me, that sodium ion battery chemistry and that sodium ion battery, for me, is as important to the transition to sustainable energy as the 4680 battery. So Absolutely, yeah. So. <laughs> no, I agree because that not only, well, sodium ion on its own is, essential i believe for storage technology um it's just a little bit heavier it's a little bit less energy dense but getting that into the massive market of energy storage and distribution would free up lithium ion for other uh, ventures such as the vehicles yeah this the sodium ion is good for better for energy storage than like an lfp battery cell because 
it should uh, be able to scale more easily. It's going to be a little bit less energy dense, which, you know, that matters less for energy storage. It still matters for energy storage. Uh, but it's going to be, ultimately, it's probably going to be about, I don't know, 30 to 40% cheaper than lithium ion batteries at scale. That's what I've seen. Uh, and then it's also going to be high cycle life. And what matters most for energy storage is cost per kilowatt hour per cycle. One of the main reasons I want to see a teardown of one of these sodium ion battery cells is because they do have drawbacks. Mm -hmm. uh, people think, oh, sodium ion, problem solved. But it's like, well, the extent that that technology is adopted depends on how much of how many of the problems that they've solved. Like, for instance, because it has such a, a wide voltage range, right. you might see a significant power drop between a fully charged and a fully discharged battery cell. Whereas LFP, it's uh, the voltage is flat. Which is its own problem. Yeah, yeah. So all these things, such an excellent point. Oh, I love it because uh, people think it's best to either have a f like a flat voltage profile or a slanted voltage profile. It's like no, each of them poses different problems. Right. Because even though you might get more steady power output throughout uh, the discharge cycle, it's also more difficult to read the state of charge. Yes. You know how much battery cell that you've used. So for sodium ion, it has a very steep. Uh, voltage profile so it might lose a lot of power as it's discharged could that be an issue maybe maybe not it depends on you know uh not just the voltage but the current that you can pull out of it so, um so yeah it's almost as steep as like a lead acid battery but um it also has a different construction so you have hard carbon anode you have i believe cattle is using the prussian white cathode um, what the elect what's the electrolyte going to be? What's the separator going to be like? You're going to have a different porosity, different um, size pores in it. It's going to be different in a lot of ways. And that changes the economy behind the cells. Exactly. It's like uh, every new battery cell is an alien technology. People think they're like, oh, we'll just swap out sodium for lithium. It's like, no, you, you pull out that lithium and you swap it for sodium, everything else in the battery cell changes. You don't need any, you don't need to use copper on the anode, for instance, anymore. Right. But uh, to your point, that's interesting of itself for people who are battery geeks. Uh, but from the perspective of Tesla and the industry, how does that affect scaling up these cells? Uh, because all right, so we've removed the bottleneck for lithium because it's you know there's much more sodium available out there uh, than there is for lithium for for batteries. So that eliminates that bottleneck, but. Um, what does the new bottleneck become? Does it become the hard carbon anode? Does it become this or that? Um, so, yes. <laughs> um, so hard carbon is an interesting one. I've been looking into that pretty deeply because of the potential of a graphite shortage. Uh, right now, the entire um, the global economy is built around Chinese supply. Not even just supply, but um, refinement. So it's um, controlling the corner, doors and corners, access and pivoting. So conversion, um, China controls 90% of the graphite production and 100% of the refinement. Yeah, that, that opens a, a few doors in my mind. So I'm yeah, one more reason to get our hands on those cells and um, <clears throat> find out like what material, because I think by looking at it, you you might get some indication of what raw material that they use to produce that. So it gives you an idea of maybe what's going on with the supply chain. And then there's one more point on sodium ion batteries is that their charge discharge efficiency supposedly isn't as good. Like, you know, lithium ion battery, 98%, you might lose like 2% to heat. 
and other effects. Whereas um, typically people expect a sodium ion battery to only be about, you know, 85% efficient with newer versions claiming in the low 90s. But still, that's, you know, that's a 5% extra energy loss that you're incurring with like a sodium ion battery. Right. A lot of that's in your, um, your first charge uh, irreversible loss. Okay. Um, that's, that's a product of the anode. So the um, hard carbon does not work like graphite. It's not intercalation, but it, it, because it's uh, amorphous, it just, it's more of an absorption uh, to surfaces. So it is easier to bind to, but harder to separate stuff that gets deeper into it. I got you. Yeah, because like when I've seen images of like CATL and things like that, there's just like these little pockets, whereas graphite is just like perfectly ordered. This is just like a jumble, like somebody threw a whole bunch of sticks on the ground, except it's like, you know, sheets of paper. And then the lithium just has to find a like an open space in there. But graphite will not work with sodium ion. It's just too big. And that's, it's weird because it gets down to chemistry issues. It gets down to physics issues. Like this is literally just too big to fit into the space. Yeah, as one of the best descriptions I've heard. It's like we're getting so deep into the geeky <laughs> stuff here, <laughs> so probably pull pull back out after this. But um, yeah, it's a a multi physics, multi scale system. People are used to dealing with things on like one type of physics on one level of scale, but batteries are just so complicated. And there's yeah, uh, you're dealing with electrochemistry, mechanical chemistry. And you're dealing with it from the size of an atom all the way up to a battery pack, which you're looking at like a million fold scale there, something like that. Right. And you see that even like um, with sulfur batteries because of the chemistry change, like um, sulfur will do a S8 ring, but the S7 ring and the S6 and the S5 causes so many different changes in the way the properties, uh, the electrical properties as it reacts or as it interacts with the electrolyte and the distribution of the positive negative current that it affects the predictability and reliability of the cell. Yeah. What he said, <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't looked that much into to sulfur, but I know that's like every time I look into a chemistry, it's uh, yeah, it's, I realize how ignorant I am as anytime I look into new chemistry because of all the new things that happen. Well, take like magnesium as a hypothetical. It's a divalent ion. So you have Mg plus two and you have Mg plus one and they're both going to react differently at different rates. Yeah. I'm trying to understand, you know, like CATL, their new battery chemistry. Maybe we can talk about that there. Uh, MP3 chemistry or M3P chemistry. Yeah. So basically it's a uh, LFP. And then what they've done is they've added some manganese. The manganese increases the voltage, but it also makes it more unstable. So they've doped it with like aluminum and a, a few other things. Um, but yeah, one thing that happens with manganese is it has all these different, uh, oxidation states and each one of them causes different issues within the battery cell. So that's why you have to add the other chemistries to balance that out. Mm -hmm. Manganese, I think has the most oxidation states of any, uh, transition I, metal. I don't know, but there's at least four that, um, I was, I was looking at. Yeah. So those oxidation states, I've, I said ionization, but it's definitely oxidation that plays a complete, um, chaos situation when it comes to the chemistry and predicting and controlling. Yeah, because uh, 
I don't know if I want to get this dip deep into it, but you get into things like uh, Jan Teller effects, where the the shape of the uh, the electron clouds within those atoms um, it gets lopsided, and then that actually changes the whole crystal structure because one of the electrons is kind of swung around. It's like what? Oh my god! <laughs> and your atomic radius changes too, so yeah. it might not fit as efficiently in the three state as opposed to the seven state. So. Yeah. Yes, it becomes a nightmare in that situation. That's why they everyone likes these pure systems where lithium it's one thing and it's got one electron floating around and that's easy. Mm-hmm. So, but when it gets to um, like the hybrid pack, like cattle wants to use with a sodium and lithium ion, so they're balancing that kind of stuff. But they're doing that with like the BMS system. Mm-hmm. So, so um, do you have? Okay, so there's a couple different play. Uh, directions we could take this one is the hybrid pack that catl is working on so hybrid sodium and lithium and then uh yeah what will the other is the lm lfmp or the m3p battery um with that hybrid battery pack do you think that's a gimmick the way that like battery pack swapping and things like that because to me it feels like a gimmick why not just put all the cell same cells in the same battery pack and then specify you know Use your LFP battery cells for this type of vehicle, and use your sodium ion, or sodium battery cells for another type of vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I probably defer to you more more for this. I'm not as familiar with the hybrid chemistry, but uh, like yeah, from my understanding, it uh, certainly seems like a specific chemistry for a specific vehicle application seems like the most straightforward way to go. Uh, but I you know I, I'd be open to hearing your your thoughts dumbed down for me. I say that, that I'm just trying to get a marketable vehicle. If you just have sodium ion, you're going to have a 70 mile vehicle. You toss some lithium ion in there, keep up to 125, 150. And um, that makes it somewhat marketable. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it from that angle, but that makes sense as well. I thought it was just like, it seems like in China, they do a lot of things. It's like, this looks cool. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, but um, that has, actually has more of a pragmatic um um, that's more of a pragmatic view. Yeah, I, I wonder if the additional complexity that would be driven by having a hybrid chemistry like that would be worth what additional marketability you would gain just being able to advertise a little more range like that. That's an area I'm not too familiar with, but I, I, I think so. Because yeah. just from my, you know, from uh, the, and I, I have seen your uh, video on the sodium ion batteries. I, I, I love watching your stuff. It's incredibly helpful to me just to be able to kind of keep up with stuff, but also there aren't a whole lot of places that go into such a high level of detail. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have a chemistry degree like Antonio. So, uh, you know, kind of having things laid out in a, you know, uh, technical, but understandable way. It's, it's very helpful, but, um, you know, like, uh, applications for a sodium ion battery, uh, for a vehicle, if it doesn't necessarily need to be super long range, if it's just like a commuter car. So like, um, you know, my, uh, my mom has a, it's a 2012 or a 2013 electric Ford Focus. And she's had this thing basically since it came out or maybe since like 2015. It's uh, advertised. I think they listed as like a 76 mile range. It's a 23 kilowatt hour battery pack. Um, and this thing, I think at this point in its life cycle, you're lucky to get 53 miles out of a full charge, but she takes it literally just back and forth to work. Her, uh, office has level two charging there. So she just can leave it plugged in during the day. So for something like that, when it's not being used more for like driving a few miles to work, maybe going to the grocery store, you don't need a whole lot of range. I don't really see the need to be able to advertise every vehicle as having, you know, three, four or 500 miles of range. If all you need is something that's 
less costly, you know, just more kind of commuter daily driving kind of thing. But at least that's that's how I see it. Just knowing somebody who uses an EV for just very basic, you know, stuff, not necessarily road trips or longer commutes like that. That makes perfect sense. Like it is definitely a user case. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's nice to have that option open if somebody doesn't want to drop, you know, however much we paid for the Model S Plaid here, or, uh, I mean, you know, the, the Rivian is, you know, so they're all fairly expensive. Uh, so having an option, uh, like the, uh, the um, CATL vehicle with the sodium ions is having that be more affordable for people who want an EV, but maybe can't justify the cost of something that's, you know, a rocket on wheels. Uh, You know, I think that it, I think it should be accessible for people to get into that. And I don't think they all need to necessarily be a model S plaid. I think, you know, something a little less uh, uh, performance oriented is, is uh, totally acceptable. And I'd like to see more of that on the market. Yeah, I really don't want my grandmother driving around in a zero sixty and three cent car. Um, so, but then again, she might enjoy it. So it's, it's not up it's not up to me to say that. Um, yeah, so your other item was LMFP, right? Yeah. So manganese—that's an interesting one because it definitely adds effects to the cells. Um, the cathode and just like it gives you that voltage. So. That's one good thing. It's the uh, temperature. It's more likely. It's more energetic. So yes, it creates a temperature difference. Um, but it basically just improves the overall LFP performance. It kind of gives you get rid of that flat curve a little bit. For for me, the the feeling I get with this M three P chemistry is that like there's enough differentiation between the LFP chemistries and the nickel chemistries where you have two distinct um, like uh, two distinct products with the M3P chemistry uh, you're going to add, be adding cost because the uh, M3P chemistry will cost a little bit more at least my understanding is it is uh, it's going to cost more uh, on a kilowatt hour basis and then because you're packing more cells in the pack uh, you can fit more cells in the pack. It's going to, you know, the pack itself, uh, it's going to be, you know, probably end up being 10 to 15% more expensive for that. So what it's going to do is it's going to create this space between an LFP chemistry and a nickel-based chemistry. I don't know if we need that. To me, it seems like, you know, like we're fine with the LFP and the nickel-based chemistry. One thing it might do, maybe you can just, uh, if you really want to simplify your product line, split the difference, eliminate the LFP, eliminate the nickel chemistry, and then have something that's like, you know, uh, somewhere in between LFP and nickel. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know where it fits in the market. It seems exciting and interesting, but uh, what's what's the use case? Yeah, that's, a, that's a very good point because um, if you think of it from a lean design perspective, the less variability you have, the more efficient your um, cost centers are. Um, do you really need it? I think you can get get away with the LFP for the mass market vehicles and the high nickel with the specialty cases. Do you need it? Um, I, don't, I don't think you really need it. Yeah, especially if you're already doing an LFP or a nickel-based chemistry. I, I don't, you know, if you're only doing uh, in between, then yeah, maybe. But no, I think if you're already, if you have the uh, sort of the low end and the high end of where that would sit, I don't, I don't see a need to invest in, in that as well. Well, not to mention that, but also like as the technology improves, that gap 
between what LMFP was or LM three FP mm-hmm. accomplished and what LFP can accomplish, mm-hmm. it'll shrink. So right. you can get rid of that just by letting the technology mature. Mm-hmm. Good point. That's the conclusion I came to. It's like uh, we know that uh, CATL has better pack technology now that eventually come to like a Tesla Model Three, and that's going to give you maybe ten to fifteen percent more battery cells in the pack. So no need to change the chemistry, just change the pack and you're already getting that kind of boost. Mm -hmm. But the thing is you pack more battery cells into a battery pack and that battery pack is going to cost more. So will Tesla even want to do that? Mm -hmm. Because people always forget that, yeah, 10 to 15% more energy density, but you put those cells in the pack, you're going to, it's not free. (laughs) You're going to be paying for those. Yes, you will. We've been running numbers just for our own internal purposes. But like what we found is like Tesla leads the way in, uh, dollars per kilowatt hour or kilowatt hours per dollar. Um, the amount of cells they put in and the range that they get out of it is more efficient on their level than anyone else. So I've never considered it that from that because I know they get things cheap, but then they also have to, uh, there's an exponent there where not only you're getting them cheap, but your entire vehicle level efficiency is better as well. So you're not just getting, you know, say uh, 10% cheaper battery cells, you're getting 20% more range out of each of those battery cells. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah all right. these com these, all, all this stuff that Tesla does compounds on itself, which is yeah. one, one of the reasons why it's so fascinating. They're not a one trick pony. They're stacking all these innovations. Mm-hmm. And which is going to make it more fun when it comes to the cyber truck, because yeah. they're doing the exoskeleton, they're doing the castings, they're doing the high nickel chemistries, hopefully. Um, the, what version two or three of the 4680 cell Mm -hmm. with that different chemistry. So it'll be interesting Mm -hmm. Um, from a cost side. I have no idea like uh, cold rolled steel 30 X, whatever cold rolled. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you see on that side, Julian? Uh, In terms of the battery cells themselves or just the um, amount of weight you can remove from the vehicle by changing the, uh, um, composition and structure of the car. Uh, so for the, Ooh, yeah. So I body structure side, that's, uh, not as much my forte, but certainly like when we, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, just looking at the giga castings as a prime example, just one that I, you know, know off the top of my head and we've looked at, um, it's uh, a lot of that stuff that, you know, I think we found out that the giga castings really were almost a weight neutral uh, change. It was uh, purely just for a process save, uh, ease of assembly. Um, so that's true. something like that. It's And that's actually a very critical point that uh, I think a lot of people, when uh, they can be you know critical of some things that Tesla is looking at doing, like the giga castings in terms of repairability or, uh, you know, what have you. It's not necessarily that they're always looking at driving down the piece cost. They're also looking at assembly cost. So, you know, you have roughly the same amount of material in terms of weight between the giga casting and what was used in the vehicle before, but they've got one piece, not, I forget how many they were able to consolidate uh, with that even. But um, so they're, they're looking at it more in terms of how can we build it quicker and how can we have the process end of it be less costly as opposed to let's just make the component itself cheaper um so yeah in terms of the vehicle side of things uh you know it may not necessarily be a cost save 
Um, but the battery itself, so like the 4680 pack, uh, if we talk about like the material and structure there, there's obviously a lot less inside that than we would see in almost every other pack we've done with the internal uh, extruded lateral reinforcements, uh, things like that. Right, assembly was so much easier for that. Yeah, because you can effectively, instead of having a complex series of extrusions and stampings all welded and bolted together, uh, you can, you know, the uh, 4680 pack, I think was like a four millimeter thick stamping for the tub itself. And then, you know, the cells were just dropped right in. So uh, there are significant weight and cost savings, uh, you know, taking that kind of material out of the pack. Did you get a chance to go through the master plan part three? Uh, I was able to go through, uh, yes, I caught a couple recaps of investor day, uh, went through some of the notes that you had uh, compiled. Uh, I didn't get a chance to go into it in as much detail as I was hoping to, but the broad strokes, yes, I am familiar with. What did you think of the cast or the assembly change where they, um, they assemble the vehicle in a completely different way. Like they don't code it. Oh, that's, I, I think that's kind of brilliant actually. Um, I, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with, uh, you know, I, and I think they did in uh, their presentation made the point of the existing assembly line has been around since Henry Ford invented it 100 years ago. And after 100 years, how much can you really improve on something when it's used by however many, you know, basically every OEM on the planet at this point, maybe except Tesla. So I, I don't think that there is uh, anything wrong with finding some other ways to look at it. And I think in terms of building up sub-assemblies like that and just doing one, you know, only really assemble the vehicle once. Because when you think about it, assemble the doors, paint them, take them off, then do all the building up. It's getting those kinds of redundancies out, which I know Tesla looks at in terms of their process and just eliminating that at every step that they can. Uh, I, I think that that's a great idea. And I, I, yeah, I was very intrigued by the way that they were uh, explaining all of that. And in terms of process uh, efficiency and how much less costly that's going to be uh, and factory floor space you get to save too. It's, I think it's, it's a great idea. And that also applies to like the new winding technology. So that when I went to the uh, hairpin design as opposed to the mm-hmm. traditional winding. So yeah, that will improve the process. Yeah. Yeah. Being more automated. Cause uh, yeah, like we discussed earlier, the uh, hairpins versus the, uh, the windings, there's more automation and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, glad to see that. I'm surprised it did take them this long, but like you said earlier as well, it's, uh, you know, going, you're in a car going 80 miles an hour, you can't change the tire. So. And you are looking into some of that as well for something coming up. Yeah. Yeah. I have, um, the video is complete. I just need to do like a, a final pass on it. One, one of the things that you mentioned before the video that you wanted to understand is like what parts of the video that I do as well. It's everything. It's a one man show. Okay. So it's, uh, uh, and it's, it's one way that I could, cause like, I don't put out many videos. I put out like once every, one every two weeks and there's a lot of people want me to increase the pace. And it's like, well, I've tried to increase the pace. Like, do you realize how much like effort goes into these videos and it's just me working on it? Like, well, you know, why don't you outsource some of that? Sorry. I like, if I want to keep the level of quality up, uh, I can't. And it's not just me being, um, obsessive compulsive or controlling maybe i am obsessive compulsive but (laughs) in terms of i've tried to bring other people into it before but uh what happens is as i'm assembling the video say i do the script i do a rough draft i go through that rough draft and you know just uh clear out the errors but then what happens is i start pulling together all the images and as i'm pulling together images i'm researching at the same time because i'm looking for images that match 
uh, what's on the script. And I realized, oh, this is totally wrong. I, f- I find an image that conflicts to, with what I did. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I have to cut that out or rewrite it, etc. So uh, as I'm working through and finding all the images, uh, I realize that I've, I've made errors. So it's, it's a quality check when I go through and add the images. And then when I do the voiceover, I realize, oh, you know, this really isn't flowing now that, and uh, this doesn't make sense now that I'm hearing the words coming, come out of my mouth. Mm. So uh, then I have to do another editing pass there. So it's always, I'm constantly Mm -hmm. redoing parts of the videos. It's not just like I sit down, write it, pound it out. It's like, uh, it takes me about 10 days at least to make a video. Okay. And this isn't including all the research, right? which that's another side of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm trying not to take this too many directions at once but basically and then you know as i said um you know tesla will give us updates while i'm making the video so that throws a, a wrench in my tires as well so anyhow it's like i have to do this all myself because it, it can't go through more than one mind it's kind of like the same reason why tesla overloads their engineers and gives them like we're not going to divide this between five people. We're going to run it through one brain because that's the best way to do it. Anytime that you add other brains to it, what you're doing is that there's a, it's like contact resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, there's something lost every time you have to transfer the information to somebody else. So I wouldn't be able to have the level of quality I do if I divided it among, amongst people. Now, in terms of the research, every video that I do, I know a level deeper than what I've put into that video. I want to make sure if somebody asks me a question, question in the comments that not only do I understand what's in the video, I understand why the things in the video are the way they are and how they connect with other industries, other technologies, etc. Mm-hmm. So I thought when I first started the channel that I would do one video and then I would be out of ideas. But what I found is that there's like this, like this focus, this spotlight of knowledge that you have. And there's things, there's like a periphery, like a, an edge to that. Um, there's all the things that touch that little piece of knowledge. And in order to do this little spotlight, it has all these connections around it. So every time you do a video, it gives you ideas for five more videos. Mm-hmm. So I have hundreds of like, you know, one paragraph notes that I've made to myself about things that I need to discuss. So yeah, it's this spider web of information that happens when I'm yeah. researching the videos. And it's it's never ending because there's new information coming out each day. And I have to integrate that into all these spheres of knowledge that I have and make sure that I'm not tripping over myself. Right. So. We get that on our end as well. Oh. You have to stay up to date, mm-hmm. um, process changes, uh, new technologies. Yeah. And if you don't, you become um, like stagnant. Like stagnation is dangerous. Um, if you become comfortable, you become replaceable. And you have to be uh, psychotically obsessed <laughs> to a certain point. Like, cause this isn't like, it's not just like, you know, um, I'm working on these things for uh, the videos for like, I don't know, 10 hours a day or six to eight hours a day, seven days a week. But then on top of that, in my free time, I'm, I'm on Twitter talking to people about things. And they're like uh, just bouncing ideas around. People are asking. It's just constantly, um, while they were out partying, he studied the blade. <laughs> so I do not have a life. So this is everything. Well, there's just so much information to absorb. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, just us trying to keep up with things here. Uh, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's really overwhelming. So, I mean, I, kudos to you for how just, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot to keep track of. 
Yeah. I don't even know how we got onto this topic, but uh, <laughs> one thing I was thinking about uh, on the drive up here, because it's, it's something that I was discussing with Sandy on, uh, I think it's Farzad's channel before, like before we started the interview one day. And it was, um, how do you deal with poor, poor performance? Like, cause sometimes I've been at places before that you have somebody who's basically dragging the team down, et cetera. And usually that was in a bureaucracy. You can't get rid of the person and you're kind of stuck with them. How do you keep your level of performance high here? Because it's, you have a high performance organization. What are the rules around that? Do you go tell uh, dad, Sandy, or, <laughs> or who makes the decision? Um, I don't know. I think because we're, uh, we're, we're a relatively small company. We're maybe hovering just over 90 people total. Um, and uh, it's, everybody has kind of their own uh, specialty. So Antonio and I, he's more battery uh, chemistry and battery oriented. Uh, my background's in mechanical engineering uh, materials. So I've kind of fallen into the battery stuff as I've been here. But then it's also like integration to the vehicle and some of the automotive side. But everybody kind of has their niche. We have an electrical team that's comprised of a couple individuals who are all very, very good at what they do. Different specialties, high voltage, uh, you know, power electronics, circuit boards, wire harnesses, things like that. And so I, I think it's honestly, we all just kind of check ourselves. And it's because there's so few of us and almost every project we get in the door, everybody is involved in some capacity. We all want to kind of keep up and do as much as we see everybody else doing. Um, I don't know if you have a different perspective on that, but just you know, as far as I, I feel. No, that's definitely true. And a lot of it is our line of business kind of encourages the um, the learning process because we're bringing in new vehicles all the time. We're seeing what's changing um, and we have to research to stay up with that. So we had the Lucid and the Hummer in. So those are completely different materials. The Rivian's using a different chemistry in their cells. Yeah. So we have to understand how these work. We're compiling a report because like you said a lot of the information out there is just not right mm -hmm. so we're generating our own material uh we're doing a battery report that is just on uh, electrical performance physical characteristics of cells mm -hmm. and we're trying to improve the knowledge base that's out there there's uh, other people that are doing it and we're trying to partner with them more so that we can uh throw information back and forth at each other but our goal is learning as much as we can improving the net that knowledge that is out there and then we learn in the process as well yeah there's a, a certain amount of entropy to knowledge and information and what i what you guys do is so helpful because there is um like for instance i love the tesla community but there is <laughs> sometimes boom a new piece of information hits and it's just like all this speculation that's um Sometimes there's not even enough information there to speculate. Uh, I'm not going to, I can't, this is PG, isn't it? <laughs> but there's a word I have for it. But <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, it's, there's, somebody has an idea and then people repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, and nobody questions it. And it just gets passed along and it grows. Uh, it's like this game of telephone. So um when you have people like yourselves putting a stake in the ground, clearing up information, providing uh, accurate information, it's so helpful. Um, I often reference or look at your videos on things that you've done or even use your uh, B-roll in my videos. It's so helpful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think uh, we're getting the uh, nearing our time. So uh, just, uh, yeah, from Antonio and I, everybody here at Monroe, thank you so much for being on here. Uh, to anybody listening, if you uh, have not somehow happened upon Jordan's channel, please go check out The Limiting Factor on YouTube, an incredibly helpful resource if you're more technically minded or if you're just interested in uh, batteries and how they work. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for listening.